text we'll be looking at is printed in your bulletin. Uh, chances are you've never seen this. It's a very old movie. Uh, that was, it's titled No Time for Sergeants. Uh, it's about uh, this man from the remote hills of Appalachia who ended up being drafted into the military. The movie is actually in black and white. It stars Andy Griffith. Uh, there's one scene in the movie where he's describing reading the Bible to his father, who can't read, by the way. Um, and he comes across names that he can't pronounce, and so he just replaces them uh, with names like Fred and John and Betty. Um, as we come to this list this morning, here, lots, there's lots of wisdom in doing that, um, uh, to be perfectly honest. There, uh, the comment was made, actually, in a preaching class that said this, when you're preaching from the biblical text, avoid the list, they're deadly. Um, and so we reached the end of Romans uh, this morning. If you've been with us, you know that we've been looking through uh, this really remarkable letter that Paul wrote uh, to the church in Rome early uh, in the first century. There are no less than 26 names listed in this list, and one of them is unnamed. Truth of the matter is we know almost or virtually nothing about them. What we do know is that two from the list are not Christians at all. Eight or nine of them are women. Um, one or two of the names appear elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, there are five possible house churches represented in this list, as best we can tell. Um, and just to give you an idea, Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome, and it probably numbered less than a hundred at the time that he wrote this letter. So less than 100 people occupying five houses, less than 20 in each one of them. Look with me as I, as I read the list from Romans 16 this morning. Hear the Word of God. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Chinchoria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of His people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They're outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Amphilitus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apuleius, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis. Another woman who's worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who's been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus and Phalegian, Hermas and Petrobonus, Hermas and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nergius, and his sister Olympias, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions, put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them. 
For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone who has heard about your obedience, everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sophie Pater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, send you greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus, sends you their greetings. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaimed about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever. Through Jesus Christ, amen. I'm just going to bet no one got excited about this list this morning. Let's... Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for really this ending. But what are we to make of it this morning? We all come from different places. Some of us really desperately needing to hear from you. Others of us have no expectation of that this morning. And yet we pray that all of us would meet with you, that you would speak to us, that you would care for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. New York Times recently wrote an article about how friendship, close friendships, impact uh, people that are midlifers. They said that really at midlife it's hard to meet the three conditions that are required uh, to make a deep friendships. The first is proximity, uh, repeated connections is the second, and a setting that encourages people to let down their guard in the defenses. Article said in their 30s and 40s, plenty of new people enter your life through work, uh, through child's play dates, and of course, through Facebook. But actual close friends, the kind you call in a crisis, are in much shorter supply, according to the article. When we approach midlife, our days of youthful exploration, uh, where every day sort of felt like a blind date, are fading. Schedules compress, priorities change, people often become pickier in what they want from friends, and no matter how you make, how many friends you make, there's this sense that sort of creeps in. The writer described really midlife as being BFFs, not making best friends forever, but instead KOFs is the way they described it, which is kind of friends for now is the best description. Into that recognition, into that environment, we have this list that Paul has written. And we really just need to see the significance of the list just to begin with, just as an overview. This is not naming uh, important people. What do I mean by that? Paul is not naming the movers and shakers. If you think that, if you approach the list that way, you really miss the point of what he's driving at. It's also not a mercenary list. What Paul wrote in this last chapter really is not a list at all. He's remembering people who were special to him or who had an impact. He shows 
through this list, a real deep love and affection for these people. Just look at this. Look at what he says, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, they risk their necks for me. Adronicus and Junia, they were in jail together. Paul's point is that these are great people in his life. There's Mary. We have no idea which Mary this is. Mary was a common name in the ancient Near East. Well, what Paul does note about her, she worked very hard. Mary is there when everyone else quits. Eponidas, according to Paul, the first person converted by his ministry, the first person who came to know Jesus through his ministry. Listen, nobody forgets that. My point is this. These names are not important people. They're not significant people, at least the way we think about it. And it's not a mercenary list. These names are personal for Paul. The only letter which approaches this list is Colossians. See, this is much more than a, just a formality at the end of a letter. The best way to describe it, this is an embrace from the apostle. So that's what it's not. What it really is, is just that everyone is significant. Francis Schaeffer said this, there's no such thing as small people. There's a mutual sense of service and support here. And this is an invitation, this long list of names, is to be seen and to see others that way, not to see others as in the way. Look at what he says in verse 16. It's strange to us, but he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. This was a key part of the early church liturgy. This was the way that they did business early on. It's weird to us, and yet it's an expression of affection is the best description I can give. It's seen uh, in the Middle East. A kiss on both cheeks normally meant uh, that you belong. You belong to the same family around, built around the Messiah. It's a reminder of unity, a reminder of importance, a reminder of acceptance, of belonging and purpose. The novel Grant is written to tell the story of Ulysses S. Grant's meteoric arise from just being a store clerk to being a Civil War hero and beyond. By the fall of 1816, Grant had overseen several really successful campaigns, Vicksburg and Chattanooga, and suddenly, because of this, national leaders and politicians who months before would have no idea who he was now wanted to rub shoulders with him. Because it looked like, actually, that the Union was going to succeed, was going to be victorious. In October of that same year, he made his way to Louisville, and Grant was approached by the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, and the Governor of Ohio, John Burrow. Grant and Stanton had never met, had never laid eyes on one another. They had communicated by telegraph before this event. History tells us that Stanton was short of breath, asthmatic, and at this greeting, he was sniffling from a heavy cold. Um, he was stout, and he barged into Grant's car. He eyed the officers that were present, and he began to pump the hand of a bearded man who wore an army hat that he assumed was Grant. How do you do, General Grant? He cried. I recognize you from your pictures. The problem was he was shaking hand with Grant's medical director instead. Stanton later admitted that in guessing which officer was Grant, he had eliminated the real Grant because he looked much too ordinary 
and it wasn't the pre uh, kind of proposing figure that at least he imagined that Grant would be. This list challenges us because we tend to view others by what they can give and provide. We gauge our involvement with those around us or their importance in those terms. What Paul reminds us of is that we're a family of names. Memories are attached to those names. If you're a Christian this morning, the question becomes, would anybody remember your name? If you moved, would anybody notice or care? Are you plugged in, either here or somewhere, in such a way that people know you or that the place would fall apart without you would be the best description? Are you plugged in? What part do you play? Because we'll get to that in just a minute from this great list of names. By the way, uh, complaining or critiquing doesn't count. Um, we all know it takes no creativity, no effort, no courage to complain. Paul's point is, and it's pretty profound, is that we're a family of names where you can be known, not just tolerated. It's not just the significance that he unrolls here. It's also the incredible diversity. This list really overturns uh, cultural, social norms. The best overall description I can give of you, this is countercultural. It's revolutionary what he does here. And just right off the bat, he begins by overturning sort of gender norms. Of the names listed, eight or nine are women. It strikes us, it should strike us, not just as sort of interesting, but significant and important that Paul starts it that way. Because the women named here are fellow workers. There's not a hint, a notion that they hold some kind of secondary position. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The first name is Phoebe of Chinchoria. By the way, Chinchoria is a port in Corinth. It's the place that Paul would go to get on a boat to continue his um, missionary journeys, to continue his work. And she's called a deacon of the church. The formula that Paul employs here suggests that she holds an office. It also says, or the actual literally says, uh, there's an also inserted in the text that seems to mean that it was in addition to what her service was, she held an important place in the early church. Most especially the phrase, she's of the church which is in Chinchoria. It doesn't imply or implies much more than we sort of think it does that she holds an official status. Even today, we refer to things like Kyle is the pastor of Grace Church, right? That's the same way that Paul is using this terminology. And then at the end, she's been the helper of many. If all she did was help in the church, that would be superfluous to what he actually said in verse 2. Paul's point is that this woman, Phoebe, bears an office. She's important. And she's to be received because of her service. She's been a great help. Technically, the word is benefactress. In the ancient Near East, that holds a great honor. It means that she's a woman of business, actually using her skills and her money to support the church, and she's traveling to Rome on likely on her own business, and get this, Paul entrusts this letter to her care to deliver. If that were not enough, he also names Jania, outstanding among the apostles. 
What Paul is saying is this is another one sent by the church recognized for her unusual leadership and incredible gifts. I don't want to overdwell the point, but Priscilla was involved in actually the discipleship of Apollos, an early preacher in the first century. My point is women were active, influential in the ongoing life and mission of the church. The first century or the fourth century philosopher Libanus said this, what women these Christians have. You know, he didn't know the half of it. It's not just gender has been sort of transformed by this list, but also race. Included in the list are Jews. We know that. Priscilla and Aquila from verse 3. But also Greeks as well, Greek Christians. To us, we look at this and just think, well, that's not a big deal. It's not surprising. But when this was written, this is astonishing. The reality is they don't belong together. But you have one family gathered around this Jesus. And then lastly, class. Some of the names we know were probably royal or high-ranking. Aristobulus and Narcissus were not Christians as far as we know. They were the heads of great houses actually in Rome. Narcissus had been the favorite of Emperor Claudius. He committed suicide right after the emperor's death. But his household remained significant. Phoebe belonged to a class, at least in the ancient Near East, who put private money, funds, at public disposal. Erastus, he names, city director of public works. Gassius is the house where Paul was meeting. Yet others, like Paul, had nothing. What does this tell us? Well, the Roman emperor Claudius uh, in 49 A.D. expelled all the Jews from Rome over a riot over at least teaching about Christ. Jewish Christians like Priscilla and Aquila were forced to leave. So what did they do? They moved to Corinth where they set up their business, tent making there. When Paul arrived, they opened their home to him and they invited him to work and invited others to be a part of this. The trio, this Priscilla, Aquila, Paul, later ministered and worked together in Ephesus. Some think that's what the illusion that they risk their necks for Paul, possibly because in Ephesus he fought beast while he was there. If you see any pictures or any drawings of Priscilla, she's sometimes pictured with two lions who refused to attack her, giving credence to that tradition. When Claudius died in 55 A.D., they returned to Rome, Priscilla and Aquila, hosted a church in their home to whom Paul now sends greetings. Tradition of the 6th century claims that the Roman church Prisca on the Aventine Hill stands over the original house church where they were located. I hope you see from this list the incredible diversity. God calls people from every background, every class. People with and without power, without money, with money, with and without standing, with and without status. This family of names is a family of incredible diversity. No one is alike. Thank God we could. Unique individuals with individual talents, gifts, personalities. The good news is you should embrace that. You should be who you are, not who others want you to be. The strength of this list. The strength of the church is found in the differences, not in the similarities. 
Some of us try to force others into our own image or ideas about what spirituality would be. It is a contradiction of the list that you see before you. And by the way, it's a sign of profound weakness. If you're a Christian, what this means is that you must make room for everyone. It means that this is never about you. I don't know if you noticed from the list, it's never about them. And nothing that is done here is just for us or primarily for us. Finally, we need to see the security that Paul talks about. Just the threat in 17 through 19. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way. This section is an echo of Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 10. Paul describes the danger, the warning, in terms, two ways, actually, in terms of divisions and obstacles. Because he knows that as Christians, we're likely to believe and accept almost anything. Because we're unaware that we've been caught in a crossfire. There's a battle that's been raging for the redemption and renewal of the world. How can you tell the difference? Paul says first, if it's contrary to what you've learned. In other words, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection is the fulfillment of everything that's been written. And then look at the description he gives. They aim to serve themselves. Literally, what Paul says is they aim to serve their bellies. In other words, the message, the gospel, the ministry is all about them, what they can gain. The question becomes, how can they serve me? What can they do for me? How can I say things about topics that people don't want to hear about? How can I avoid those? In his first book, The Fellowship of the Rings, Tolkien describes the camaraderie of the diverse group, if you know anything about the story. They had banded together for this common cause, and they called themselves the Fellowship of the Rings. In their quest to destroy the Dark Lord, his power lodged in this one single ring. They differed in almost every single way, racially, physically, temperamentally, and yet they were united in this one exercise this one goal this one common theme and that was to destroy this ring there's a section in the book that's omitted from the movies Uh, they had a conflict heated conflict that broke out among this fellowship axes were drawn swords were drawn bows were bent words were spoken harsh words disaster nearly strikes this small gathering And when peace finally prevailed, someone who was much wiser than them all said this, Indeed, and nothing is the power of the dark Lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides all those who still oppose Him. Look at what Paul says in verse 25. Now to Him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel. You see how, what's the counter to this division and these obstacles? It really is, according to Paul, the gospel. If you've been here at all through Romans, you probably knew I was going to say that. But much better, you should have at least anticipated that Paul was going to say that. I want you to notice what he says. He doesn't say what is able to save you, but instead what is able to establish you. The gospel is not an entry point where we move on to something else. Instead, it is the way that we grow and change. It's the way that we're established uh, in what Jesus has done. 
to put the counter to that, that there's no technique, no method, no comfort, no secret insight. None of those things will actually establish you. So what actually is it? Look at verse 25 again. The message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. See, the center of the gospel, the center of it all is Jesus. The divine man who died and rose to rule over all of creation. Simply put, according to Paul, according to everything we know, the gospel is Jesus. Hidden but now revealed. He was predicted this rescue ruler. And now anyone, anywhere can believe because he's proclaimed. To the only wise God. Listen, lots of other people claim wisdom. Uh, Lots of voices claim how you can change not only you, but how you can change the world around you. Only God understands how this world works. What humans are and how they think and where we've gone terribly wrong and how all things can be put to right. How all creation one day will dance for joy at its new freedom. Listen, it's hidden, but it's now revealed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your great love and mercy that You call on us in all of our individual quirks, gifts, and abilities to join together in serving You. We realize how many times we make this all about us, about what serves us, about what we would like and we prefer, about our own taste, and we seize upon those differences And yet you call on us to be unified, to be established around the gospel that is your son. May he be present with us this morning. May he change us. May he draw us around the idea, around the purpose, around the service of renewing this world. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.